Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, joining me on the Godcast today is Leo Scully. Now, Leo is a professional snooker referee uh, from Glasgow in Scotland and has been, been officiated on the, the World Tour since 1999. Leo, it's fantastic to get you on the Godcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me. So, a Glasgow boy, are you, are you, do you still live in Glasgow or do you live elsewhere now? No, I'm in Glasgow. Yeah. Have you I've, I've, been, I've been about the country. Right, okay. But Glasgow's home, is it? Yeah. Yeah. And have have you found have you found found lockdown have you a, 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 has it been a struggle for you? Has it been all right? Um I've been very fortunate that um World Snooker were able to make arrangements for the season to, to begin, albeit belatedly. Um but We've had a full season since August, um, but lockdown's been difficult. My daughter's in Dundee. She's studying at university there. Um, my wife was working sometimes from home, sometimes not, because she, she works in a school, so she's like a key worker in many respects. But when I've been away at the snooker, it's been tough because the restrictions have been very difficult. Um, we were initially in a bubble, which was very, very strict, um, in a hotel, and my room was not allowed to move, transported from the hotel to the venue, play the matches, back to the, the hotel. And it's tough, and I suppose initially, you hear about it before the snooker began, when, it, when the, the lockdown happened in March last year, we just accepted it and probably thought, that will last a few weeks, a couple of months, then we'll be back to normal. And of course, we now know that it's not that at all. Yeah. And 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 so you've kind of, Leo, your career is quite diverse, to say the least. You went from a taxi driver to police officer to a professional snooker. That, that was quite a trip, I guess. All three of them have created memories for you, have they? Yeah, yeah. An actual fight. Um, you, you've obviously been doing your homework from somewhere against some research, research and in actual fact I was a police officer before I went into the tag scene right. um, I think it says it somewhere on World Snooker site or Wikipedia or well, you know social media um, there, there's bits and pieces of facts fly about all over the place but no I was a police officer for uh, 20 years and then I went into the tag scene which was flexible enough to allow me to pursue the possibility at that stage of um, a career in snooker refereeing. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've been about. So, as a as a kid, uh, Leo, growing up in Glasgow, what what was like? I guess this was the sixties, was it? What was what was it like for you? Was it happy memories? Yeah. Um, well, I was born in fifty eight, so yeah, and the sixties. It was my father was a janitor. Um, so we moved about sort of from school and eventually into a college where he was a janitor. But yeah, um, school, it was, it was interesting. <laughs> I do it. I do it. The, the thing that sticks with me, I'm sure my report cards were usually could do better. Ah. <laughs> um, it might even have been could try harder, which might have been more accurate. Yeah, <laughs> and and was uh, was your upbringing a religious upbringing, Leo? Were you oh yeah the green or the blue side of the city? Uh, we, we I was brought up in the 
the green side, I suppose. Uh, no, well, my, my, my parents were very religious. Uh, more, I'm, I'm going to say more so my mum. I think I maybe noticed it more with her. Um, but I just, it was, it was a very strict upbringing. Was it? Um, yeah. Sunday, was it? Sorry? Was it every Sunday, was it? Every Sunday, every feast day. Um, but the, the thing that eventually did get to me was there, there was no explanations to accompany any questions. Right. It was, it was a, I just do it. And I, I just because, you know, yeah, that's the way it is kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I was an altar boy for a while. Right, okay. People probably wouldn't know. Um, Leo, and that was interesting. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about, you know, it was kind of you just did it because it's what we all did. Did you, did you ever revisit those questions? Did you, in later life, for example, or, or do you just let them drift away? Did you ever get answers to those questions? Um, no, because I think the, the, the answers at the time of just do it came from, uh, were coming from parents, as opposed to sort of any religious person. But for me, I think I finally got fed up with what I saw as the man, let's call it the man-made side of religion. Um, because, I mean, God, being brought up in Glasgow, geez, my goodness. But, um, I think Billy Connolly summed it up quite well in one of his comedy sketches when he said that uh, being brought up a Catholic in Glasgow, you ended up with O-level guilt. <laughs> um, and I, th I think that was very true because it was always um, this was wrong and that was wrong. Mm. No explanation for it. Mm. It just was. Um, and I, I suppose as I've got older, I just look back on it and I have very little patience for the man-made stuff. Um, whether somebody believes in God or not is their thing, mm -hmm. their decision, but I don't necessarily think that they have to certainly not force it down my throat or, no. you know, come and chat my door about it. I, I'll make my own decisions. Yeah. Well, you'll be, you'll be reassured, Leo. I'm not, I'm not doing the Godcast to do that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, I've, I've watched one or two. I watched the, the one you did with Dom Jolly, which was quite funny and quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, and Alistair Campbell. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good fun, and it's it's just getting a flavour of uh, faith, really. So, yeah. what, what, and 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 looking back at the uh, the Bobby days, uh, did you enjoy? It? Was was it a real, uh, was it a real wonderful career being in the police force? Was it a sadness to leave? Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was working in the East End of Glasgow. Uh, it was a, a tough, tough school, as they say, but there were some fabulous people you meet. Um, you probably meet them in the course of, of your work where um, there's some very poor people, you know, a lot of poverty, a lot of, um, I suppose nowadays they call it social deprivation. I don't know what they called it back in the days when I was in the police in the, in the 70s, but um, they would go out of their way to help you. Um, 
And I mean, uh, there was an incident, sort of obviously many, many years ago now, where some the area I worked in, there was some strangers turned up and they started giving me and the, the cop I was with a bit of grief. And our local ne'er do wells, they appeared to defend us. And it was as if so they, they're our police. If, if, if anybody's going to give them grief, it'll be us. <laughs> so that was quite interesting, quite, quite funny. Yeah. Leo, Leo, a lot of snooker people will, will enjoy this interview because, you know, as a snooker ref, we just hear you add up the numbers and tell the, the audience to settle down. But were you, has snooker kind of always been in your blood? Have you always liked the game of snooker, even as a, as a younger guy? How did it evolve? Yeah, um, my very first memory of ever being near a snooker table was, oh, we, we were on holiday. We used to often go on family holidays to Largs, and then it's always sort of coast, still a favourite place of mine. And um, we went into a, a working man's institute, I'm sure it was, with my father, and there's a couple of snooker tables in it. And I just thought, you know, I, I would have been maybe eight or nine, which of course the full-size snooker table looked massive and uh, just trying to, to knock the balls about. And that, that would have been my introduction. I can't say that from then I fell in love with the game or anything like that. And I probably wasn't near it again until I was uh, taking time off school to go into a local snooker club and have a hit. <laughs> maybe that's where the school went wrong. I should have gone to school instead. Yeah. But uh, uh, that was that was good. And then whilst I was in the police, um, there was a a competition being held throughout throughout the UK with some fantastic sportsmen and athletes in the police service, but they can't always take part in local events because of shift work. So the police have their own. Uh, Athletics Association and this event was happening but it was then Strathclyde Police and uh, a colleague of mine who knew that I played snooker said would I be interested in, in officiating at it and of course I said yeah no problem I play snooker I can do that and he said no you actually have to be properly qualified Leo, because this is a proper British police event anyway cut a long story short he handed me the rule book Said, there's the rules, go and learn them. I'll ask you some questions, give you some guidance, then we'll get you through an exam. So I started looking through this book and pretty quickly realized I didn't know the rules of this game I was playing. How can you play a game without knowing the rules? So that, that was the start of it. I sat the exam, passed it, and it just went from there. And uh, it wasn't until I'd, I'd finished with the police and up around a bit. 1999, just before 2000, I joined a, an organisation called the PRA, which is the Professional Referees Association, which at the time was your route into World Snooker. So I joined that and uh, did a two-year probation, during which time you're assessed at every match you do. And if, the, if they decide that you're good enough, then they keep you on. It's, it's interesting hearing you talk about that, because I used to be a football ref, and um, going back, 15, 20 years, and, and the, the expectation is, as, as, as I'm sure with you, that you know every rule. You know the rules of the game. Yeah. And if there ever was a controversy, it was usually not because I didn't know the rules of the game. It was because the guys playing the game 
didn't know the rules of the game. Has that happened to you over the years where they, they just think they've known the rules and you've kind of thought... It's, it's certainly true in the amateur game um, where guys don't know the rules. They know most of them. They know the most common ones. I think in the professional game, what tends to happen is that a player is so in the moment concentrating on his particular next shot or the match that he's involved in, that if something unusual happens that I have to make a decision on, then he may question it, not because he doesn't really know the rules, it's just because, I call it a brain freeze, all he's thinking about is how do I get that ball in that pocket? What's my next shot? So if, if something happens, he's like, you sure that's right? Because he's not in that thought process. Whereas whilst we're refereeing, we have almost got a mental rule book in our head and it flies back and forward as each situation uh, evolves. Mm. Probably the same with you when you were refereeing the, the football. You had to have the rules in the back of your head ready to come forward, whereas the players, they're only concentrating on the next pass or the next corner or whatever. And I, th I think the professional snooker players are the same. Although you, there are some who, who really do know the rules. Yeah. Um, and, and then and the, I, the, the kind of the move from being kind of doing your probation to becoming a full-time pro, was that, was that an easy decision for you? Because, I mean, I suppose it's um, a lot of time away from home, lots of travelling. Was it yeah, something yeah. that you were intent on following Leo? Um, to, to be honest, not in the early stages. Um, there, there was a lot of things going on at the time within snooker. Um, there was sort of fewer competitions and different people, I suppose the political side of it, which we were never really interested in because all we were doing at the time was wanting to be able to referee. Um, and there was a I think it was, was it around about 2000, the year 2000, World Snooker put 16 of his refs on contract, different types of contract. Um, I think there was a talk about a breakaway outfit by someone else. And this might have been the way of safeguarding at least the referees in the game so that we wouldn't go there. But that, that didn't last long. Um, but during that time, you learn more and you, you see, you get the opportunity to referee at a higher level. And yeah, I think, I think by the early 2000s, it became, yeah, this is something I would like to at least see if I could take it as far as possible to see where it would go. I never thought it would go where it's gone. Yeah. And, and Leo, let me ask you, when, when you are refereeing, I mean, I, I, I've always loved snooker. I, I think it's a brilliant game and I'm sure you do. But when, yeah. when it's a big game, you know, we're talking crucible and yeah. the fear is buzzing and the crowd, the anticipation in the crowd and, you know, the fanfare goes and the, the guys walk down the steps or whatever. What, where are you? Are you just kind of, right, I just, I need to just focus on this game. You've got the best seat in the house. What, what's going through your mind at the beginning of a, of a big game like that? Um, usually for me, the, the nervous part is, before the, I'm announced out, um, whether it's, you mentioned the crucible, 
at the start of the crucible, there's the two tables set up that you probably know about if you've seen it at all. So there's two of us coming out and we get announced out. That's the nervous time for me before it all happens because very often once you're, you're, you're killing time waiting for it to begin. So there's certain things that you have to do, like see the players that you're going to referee, um, tell them where you're going to meet them, all this sort of stuff. And at the Crucible, it's a lot easier. In fact, probably that the more important the match, in many respects, the easier it is to referee. Because um, if you start with a qualifier, for instance, you have this thing in your hand called a zapper, and you keep the score. So that's one hand tied up. And you're, so you're concentrating on the score, plus the rules, plus the players and the conduct of the players. But the further you go, once you're into a televised match, you have someone there marking for you. Now, ultimately, it's still me that has to keep an eye on the scoreboard along with the players. But that's one less thing, really, you should have to worry about, particularly because it would be another referee who you'll trust to do that for you. Um, but once I've been announced out and you're standing there waiting, it's just take a deep breath, sort of relax. Um, Unfortunate enough that I've done it a lot. Um, so now it's not that it's it's easier and second nature, it's just that I have the experience. So I don't have the same nerves as I did the first time I went out. Um, and I've said to one or two of my colleagues who have done it for the first time, you know what, just relax. You know the rules, there's nothing to worry about. It'll be great and just enjoy it. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes it's not until after the match that you look back at it and think, you know what, that was absolutely brilliant. And that's when you enjoy it because at the time you're just concentrating. Yeah. And when the, when the crowd is shouting out, Leo, obviously you, your your job is to calm them all down and keep yeah. in order. But do you, do you enjoy that part? Obviously, I would guess it adds to the atmosphere and the tension in the, in, yeah. in the arena. Two questions, I suppose. How do, how do you, what's your fine line when do you say it's time to say shut up? And and how do the yeah. players, how do the players feel about that? Are they so in the zone that it's irrelevant or or does it actually affect them? Um, it's interesting because there is, there, there is a point at which no matter what the players are doing, you would have to intervene. So the general, come on, whoever is fine until the player goes down on the shot. As soon as the player's on the shot, you expect silence. And if something happens then, it depends what the player does. If the player gets up off the shot, then you would react and, and mention something. If the player doesn't and plays the shot, you leave it because you don't want to intervene and then you're the person to put them off mm. because it, it could, as you've just said, be so in the zone that he didn't actually hear something in the back row. Um, so it, it does depend. And I, I try and take my lead from the players. If something is obviously within the crowd is obviously um, noticed by them, then that's, you, you would say something. Yeah. Um, the phones are the, the popular thing that they're told. MC Rob Walker at the, certainly for the BBC events, Rob is brilliant. And um, he tells the audience when he's warm, doing his warm-up routine, 
please make sure your phones are switched off or at the very least on silent. Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part they do. I think where they forget is they maybe nip out at the interval, come back or in between frames even, and then come back in. They've nipped out to phone and say, oh, this is a great match or whatever. Come back in, forgot to switch the phone back on to silent. You know, I, I was kind of, uh, I mean, they've just been talked on the telly for people who, who are listening to this. They've been uh, rerunning the Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis kind of final. And, yeah. I remember, and I was a kid then, and I remember going down the snooky halls in Burnley where there was 20 tables and you had to queue for ages to get a table. And it was at this height. And then snooky dipped a bit, didn't it? But it's it's certainly coming up on the other side. And I was looking at the, the prize money for... Uh, the world championships that have just been completed and two and a half million pounds was up for grabs there, which is, we're talking big biz, we're talking big money, big prize money. Yeah. yeah. It gives you some idea of this, the, the size of snooker as a sport now. Yeah. Do, do you, do you feel the weight of expectation when, when, a, you know, with those kind of figures are banded around and, you know, this is not, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, a fiver on a golf course, are we? Yeah. No, um, well, the winner, Mark Zelby this year, won £500,000 for winning the World Championship. So it's, it's, it's massive money. And that, no doubt, for Mark and anyone else who's won it, um, will lead to maybe sponsorship opportunities and various other things. That, so, that, and that's their job. But it, I certainly don't feel any weight on it because... Whoever wins, it makes, I don't mean I don't care when I say it makes no difference. It literally makes no difference. None of them, they're not going to give me a percentage. <laughs> that's, that's what the managers get. Um, so I, I think I've not really had a, this discussion with many of my colleagues, but I'm going to guess that most of us don't really feel the way of the match. Um, that's, that, that's part of the nervous process before you begin you're aware that you're about to do the world final for instance or the UK final or whatever it might be or even just the first round because the first round can be uh, a tasty match depending who who's involved and I, I try not be aware of what, what's at stake whether a player needs to win this to stay in the tour, he needs to win this, to stay in the top 16 or, or whatever, because that's that's the player's problems. That's for him to deal with. Um, not that I think it would in any way influence anything that happened. It would just, as you say, be maybe another thing that's mm. in your head somewhere that doesn't need to be. No. And, and Snooker is probably as global now as it's ever been, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What effect has that had on your work? You know, are you well travelled now? Are you, you, yeah, I've been, I've been to China. So every time my, my very first ranking final was in China, um, the China Open, and Judge Trump beat Mark Selby. It was Judge's first ranking final. Um, I mean, I refereed his final of the World Championship. That was his first World Championship win. So that was nice. Um, yeah, we've been. Been to China a few times. It's a fascinating place. Absolutely fascinating place to go. Um, Australia was brilliant. I loved Australia. Mm. Um, the 
funny thing was the first time I went to Australia, came back, um, some of my friends were, so what's, what's Australia like? What, you know, tell us. And all I could tell them was I flew to um, Sydney, waited about for about an hour, flew from Sydney to uh, Melbourne, and then from Melbourne by car to Bendigo, where the tournament has been held. So basically, I'd seen a couple of airports and a venue, which was a, was a basketball stadium. So the second time we went, three of us um, agreed that we would go a week early and stay in Melbourne and see some of Australia. So at least now I feel as though I've seen some of the place and it's amazing, absolutely amazing. What's, what's, are the crowds different in China, Leo? Than you know, yeah. Sheffield. Tell us what's the noticeable difference. Um, I think initially the thing that you may notice certainly as a viewer would be that it looks empty around the table as if there's not many spectators. Um, and from what I gather, the price of the seats at round the table is quite expensive. But if you're able to look up, which the camera doesn't often do, but way up high, it's packed because that's more affordable seats. Um, I think the, the fact that there's a language problem because none of us, apart from Ni Hao and Shei Shei, you know, hello and thank you, is we don't have any Chinese language. So we can't communicate in the same way. But we do have um, staff at the venue who go around with boards, a bit like you would see in a boxing ring, they walk around with these boards saying, no cameras, no. But there's a cultural thing. And it could be that some of the Chinese players are so used to playing in a snooker hall that's really, really noisy and nobody gives them any peace and quiet. And that just carries on to the, the the venue, there was a, I was going to say funny, what it's called, an interesting incident where a fellow in the audience's phone rang and I signaled to, you know, put your phone away and he just completely ignored me. Either just didn't see me or he completely ignored me. So I went over to him. So I was standing right in front of him as close as I could get and I pointed at him and his phone. He said, put it away. And his, his reaction was to pull his foot up over his head and continue his conversation. <laughs> it was quite funny, but eventually uh, one of the stewards came along and we got it sorted out. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Chinese fans love it. They're, it's so popular. It's fantastic. Yeah. And you get a fabulous reception when you're there. Great fun. Yeah. And, Leo, how, how soon in advance do you know you're scheduled? So... You know, obviously the season's kind of at a bit of a close at the moment, but do you get your you, do you get your schedule well in advance? So you know, um, normally what would happen is we would have our schedule from the beginning of the season until Christmas, um, and then once we got sort of the the event just before Christmas is usually the the Scottish Open followed by the German Masters qualifiers, and about that time we'll find out what's happening or just after Christmas, we'll find out what's happening for the, the rest of the year up to the World Championships uh, in terms of what days you're working. 
Um, at the moment, lockdown has knocked everything uh, out of its normal sink. So we spend most of this year in Milton Keynes. Right. Um, at the the arena there, Marshall Arena. Um, with the exception of the Welsh Open when we were in uh, Wales for that, which was great. We were at the Celtic Manor, which is a fantastic resort. Mm-hmm. I wish I could play golf because it looks a great place to be. Um, and then, of course, uh, Sheffield for the World Championships. Yeah. Leo, how, how <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but how difficult is it to keep your concentration? You know, particularly if there's, you know, there's a, there's a long old ding dong of safety play. I mean, do you ever drift off and think, oh, come on? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the, there's, there's times when a player plays a safety shot. You obviously know enough of the game to know a player plays a safety shot and he lands somewhere in line behind the, the yellow spot, let's say. So he's probably going to come off a cushion or he might only be able to hit an edge well, right away you're, you're on it because you think there's a possibility they might misjudge this and you have to call a miss. Mm. It's if, so, so you're on that and you, you're working out just where the, the cue ball is. It's a situation where, imagine the yellow's on its spot and the cue ball is somewhere between that area and the yellow side cushion with nothing near it. Mm. And there's no there's no problems really for the player, but he goes down to play a shot, and he misjudges it, and he doesn't hit anything, and all of a sudden you're like, oh god, where was that white? <laughs> because it's the last thing you're expecting. Mm-hmm. Just that, fortunately, um, if you do get it dramatically wrong, we've got the technology now to um, ask for it to be brought up, and you can you can replace it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, occasionally a player will feel that there's no other option but to just lash out, you know, come off a side cushion, maybe hit the pink, and the balls go everywhere, mm. and that's that always gets a laugh mm. because both players and audience know one of the options he has is to actually to put it back, and yeah. that's, that's probably going to take a while. And what's the snooker fraternity like, uh, Leo? Is it one big happy family, or are the, you know, are there like in all walks of life, players that just there's a bit of needle always, you know, they just, you know, there's fallouts from time to time. What, what's it like behind the scenes in the snooker world? I think there's, I think generally, if not one big happy family, I think maybe two or three happy families because um, not everyone can go on with everyone else. And not for any reasons of fallouts or anything in particular, it'll just be that maybe this group of players are quite friendly because they've grown up together mm. in the, the junior ranks. Um, so they've known each other a long time and they tend to be friends together. Um, so it's not that they'll ignore others, it's just that they'll, they'll stick to their own company. But I think by and large, they all got on. Um, there's probably more... Um, not needle, but the rivalry because of what's at stake. Yeah. So, I mean, Sean Murphy and Mark Selby are good friends, but on the table, they will, they want to beat each other. I mean, if it's, if it's best of nine, they want to beat each other 5 now mm-hmm. because that's just, well, that's what they have to do. That's how they earn their money. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the match is finished, well, maybe once they've done the interviews and got 
over the, the annoyance whoever happens to have lost that particular match, they'll be fine. And, and do you do you have do you have this sense of awe and wonder about how good these guys are? I mean, I've spent endless hours on a snooker table, and my highest break is thirty three, and that was probably lucky. <laughs> and yeah, these, these guys are are super talented, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. It's, they make it look so easy that at any point in a break, they could stop, hand us their cue and say, have a go. And you would you would probably pot the ball because they've left it perfectly. Where your white might end up is anybody's guess. And that's the difference because they'll have the white exactly where they want it. And it's that cue ball control. Yeah. Um, and some of the shots they play are just unbelievable. Yeah. And the and the and the the snooker ba- the bases are just kind of brand new, aren't they? They're kind of like they look like they're like ice almost. So that to have that yeah. control and skill is is incredible, isn't it? Who's, who's the best? Who's the best player you you, you think uh, you've you've seen, Leo? And, uh, you know, if you're allowed to oh, say, I've I've had the privilege of refereeing so many, um, and there's a, there's always an ongoing debate: who's the the greatest player of all. And of course, it will centre around the likes of Ronnie O'Sullivan versus Stephen Henry because Stephen's won seven world titles, Ronnie's now won six. Um, could it be someone from the class of 92 that they refer to? That is Ronnie, Mark Williams, John Higgins. Is it one of those three? Because they're still playing, still at the top of their game. Um, and I think you might, you might sometimes see a piece that the TV will do where they'll have three or four top players, say Henry, Murphy and Higgins or Selby, talking about another player who's about to play in a match. And they will say, well, he's got the best cue action or he's got the best tactical game and it'll be different players. Mm. So I I think even the best players themselves have different ideas about who's the best for perhaps any particular circumstance. Mm. But uh, I'm just glad that I don't have to actually play against them because they are awesome. You think uh, you think Steve Davis would be at the top of the tree if he was playing in, at his at his pomp now? He was. He seemed to be. What I liked about Steve Davis was he was ruthless. You know, at yeah. the point where the audience, most of the audience, disliked him because he was so <laughs> ruthless. He, he, you know, you talk about wanting to win five 0 Well. And he'd win every game with the opponent scoring nil if he could, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all the greats would. And it's, I don't know if there's a psychological bit to it because if they if they beat someone so convincingly, then the next time they play them, that'll be in the opponent's head that there was such a, a defeat. Um, or if in a a long tournament like the World Championship. The, the quicker they can get the match over with, then they have more reserves of energy for the next match mm. because it's a, it's a long slog to do the, the 17 days. But um, I think it's very difficult to compare errors because you mentioned the cloth. The cloth's different. Um, the, the heating of the tables is different. There's heaters underneath the table. They heat it to a particular temperature and the cloth's different. Cues, you know, there, there are differences in the cues. Chalk now is the big thing. All you hear about is a difference of 
how this chalk doesn't cause kicks and this chalk's better for all this. Um, so I think I think because Steve has retired sort of relatively recently, he, he would have to still be in the mix because he was playing at the same time as Stephen Hendry, um, Mark Williams, John Higgins. You know, so so he was still playing against these guys. Maybe he was closer to the end of his career than they were. Well, obviously it was because he's now retired. But uh, yeah, I think I think he would compete. He may, he may have a different view on it. Yeah. Leo, um, some people might, when you mention the chalk, some people might go, you can't, you're having a laugh. But actually, I, I kind of get that because, you know, I, I've, I've previously had a previous world in management and, it's, and quite often they talk about the finer details, don't they? About yeah. the minutest of details. And, and you know, I suppose that would extend to the to the nib of the queue. You know, it, it, everything has to be absolutely perfect for the player. Yeah. The maximum amount of the game. Is, is that fair? Yeah, but I mean, players will talk about the the Q-tip, the different kinds of tips that are available, the the softness, how hard they are. Um, they, they have different sizes depending on pre personal preference. Um, and they feel that depending on this particular tip, they might throw the ball offline a bit more or less depending on personal preference. So that's all the stuff which... I would probably was was never good enough to to appreciate the difference it made to my game, but these guys know they're, they're so good that they understand how the slightest difference can help or hinder their game. Yeah, Leo, it's been great just listening to you talk about your experiences as a ref, and um, you you know you won't mind me saying you're of a certain vintage now. Do you? Do you still love the game now as much as you always have? Do you still get a... Is that you've seen them all? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know if you can just... But yeah, do you, still, do you still get a buzz for it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there is not... Well, for me, I've been fortunate enough to, to referee the Crucible several times, and for me, there, there is nowhere to beat the Crucible. Um, but there are certain events as well. Um, the UK Championship is always a, a great event, big event. Um, the Masters, I've, I've not done the Masters as often as I would like to have done, but it's, it's an invitation event, so it's a one table, so you don't need as many referees. Um, and just trying to sort of give us all a chance, as it were, it can prove difficult. But yeah, it's always to to be out at the crucible. It's just the best for me. Yeah. So when you're next out, Leo, what's your next? Uh... Um, I'm I'm away shortly. I'm going to uh, Q School, which is where the up and coming players go to to make their way onto the tour. So there will be players. In fact, I think this year is a a young boy, I think, I'm sure he's only about 15 years of age, he's going to be at Q School. So he must be a great talent. I'm sure I was, I'm sure he was at Q School last year. Um, so you have the, that as one end of the scale, but then you'll have players who have been on the main tour, but have fallen off. They've just, for whatever reason, they've had a bad couple of seasons. And of course, you never know what's going on in someone's personal life mm. that can affect how they play in matches. So, <laughs> excuse me, 
something may be going on, ill health or, or something, and someone's fallen off the tour, so they'll turn up at Q School as well, and this is them trying to get back on. So it, it, it's a long, it's three weeks. I'm only going for the last two weeks, but it's a long, hard three weeks. Yeah. yeah. The, the guys who qualify certainly deserve their place. Yeah. Because they've been well and thoroughly tested. Mm. Fascinating stuff, Leo. Um, thanks so much for coming on the Godcast. We have, I have a standard question I usually ask. Have you ever been to Burnley? No, I haven't. I noticed that you asked uh, some of your other guests. I don't know why I've never been there. I've probably only been to places that have um, taken me there because of snooker events. Yeah, I guess the Guild Hall's probably the nearest in terms of venue. Um, and Preston. Yeah, Preston. So yeah. yeah, it's quite a good, quite a good snooker fraternity around here. Quite a few clubs around, and it's, yeah, yeah. So. Right, well, Leo it's, Leo, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for your time, and um, and thanks for coming on the Godcast. If anybody's uh, listening or watching to this, watching this, uh, you'll find lots more in, uh, sporting interviews uh, on uh, just Google the Godcast, and you'll find it. But uh, for now, Leo, we send our love up the uh, M6, yes, up to Glasgow, and uh, we thank you so much for coming on the Godcast. Thanks, thanks very much indeed for inviting me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. God bless. Thank you. Bye bye.